Well, not too long ago, Sophia and I were working on one of her, her puzzles, her princess puzzles, everything's princess with Sophia, and she wanted to try and do this particular puzzle, which was, uh, I don't know, more pieces than she had done before. She wanted to try and do it without the box top, and I couldn't understand why, so I'm just, we're, we're trying to figure this thing out. Now, the other caveat is that dad is colorblind, and for some odd reason, she... Eh, she likes to make fun of that a lot. In fact, now she's figured out that she can, you know, beat me at something. So she, she says, oh, Dad, you know, she looks in my office at the different book spines, you know, and they're all different colors. And she'll say, what color is that? What color is that? What color is that? And, and I get about 80% wrong. And so yesterday she's like, Daddy, let's play the color game. I'm like, what's the color game? You know where I ask you a color and you can't get it. <laughs> so anyway, we're trying to do this purple and pink and yellow princessy box thing. I have no idea what these princesses are supposed to look like and we're trying to do it without the box top. Of course, you know, we had no clue where things were supposed to go. Looking at the box top is a bit like looking at Genesis when we're trying to get a picture of what our life is supposed to look like. Genesis makes some sense out of the puzzle of life. In the beginning, Genesis can help us remember what life is about, who gave us life, what this life is for, what on earth we're actually here for. And what's been fascinating to me these first few weeks of our, of our series in Genesis is that we've been looking at stories and accounts that take place before the fall, before the first people rebelled against God. So what we're looking at is a puzzle box top. We're looking at the picture as it's supposed to be before it's tainted by us in our rebellion. In fact, what we're looking at in Genesis is a picture of what life could be like with Jesus. And actually, Jesus promises that life is going to be different than the original creation and better enhanced. So, just a little just a teaser trailer to what's coming someday. Now, last week we began to look at what life could be, made, could be like if we're made in the image of God. And what we saw is that God created human beings to bear His image. Not to really reflect what He looks like. We don't think that God you know, has two feet and two legs and you know, looks, looks like us. But we're to reflect God in His, in His character, in His goodness, in His goodwill towards all things. We're supposed to reflect God in our, in our mission, in our vocation. You know, I know when you hear the word mission in church, you automatically probably think of maybe like evangelism. But what I'm talking about is much broader than that. Mission being to steward the earth, to take good care of one another, to love one another, to reflect God's good character to each other. God's called us to care for everything that He created, but more than just being managers of what He created... More than just maintaining the status quo, God has called us to be like Him in being creative. And to take the garden that He started, if you will, the creation that He started, and to enhance it, to, uh, to continue to, to write about it, and to sing about it, and to paint about it, and to build within it in ways that are respectful and honoring to God and to one another. That's the first way that we reflect His image. And we talked about that last week in some uh, detail. But today we're going to focus on the second main aspect of what it means to be made in God's image. And that is relationality. How we relate to God primarily, and out of that, how we relate to the creation and to one another. So, would you stand with me please as I read Genesis chapter 2, 
verses 4 through 25. That's the text we're going to be living in this evening. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist, or a spring, used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It grows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bedellum and the onyx stone are there as well. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, well, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Father, this is an incredible story, incredibly awesome story, that you are the author of. Lord, this is your word. We come to it humbly and ask that you would teach us that we would leave here not with more information, that we would be transformed, God, that we would be um, in a position to trust you more. So, Lord, open our hearts and our minds past what we can do in our own. And Holy Spirit, guide us as we look at your word. Amen. So Genesis 2 is clearly a different way of communicating than Genesis 1. In fact, when we compare the two, we look at Genesis 1, and it's kind of poetic, where Genesis 2 reads more like a story. It's more narrative in style. Genesis 1 teaches us that God created everything. Well, Genesis 2 gives us a, a little glimpse of who this God that created actually is and how we might relate to him. 
We can tell Genesis 2 is going to be more relational than Genesis 1, and there are three kind of clues I want to point out. Listen to this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made earth and heaven. Three quick observations. First of all, notice the shift from this is the, Lord, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made earth and and heaven. There's a small literary shift there that's, um, that's basically doing this in a nutshell. This is in a nutshell. Uh, but, uh, I had to. But what we're doing here is Genesis 1 is this top-down. It's God outside of creation creating everything with the word. The creation of heavens and earth. And in Genesis 2, because it's now more relational, it's more dealing with how people respond to him. Notice the literary shifts. And now it's the Lord God who created earth first and heaven. Earth and heaven. So a little shift there. Number two, in Genesis 1, we only get the word God, Elohim in Hebrew. Starting in chapter 2, verse 4, we see the first time in Scripture the words Lord God. Doesn't seem like much. But actually, that word behind Lord is God's personal name, Yahweh. So, in Genesis 1, we kind of have this distance, Elohim creating everything from a distance. Now, in chapter 2, we're getting the personal name of God for the first time, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh means, and what it would mean to the original audience uh, if Moses wrote this, is that Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, the one that creates a covenant with mankind to bring them to salvation and goodness. And, and what it means is, even when we fail, He keeps His end of the covenant. So here's a trigger now that we're, we're moving from Genesis 1, which is just about who created and Genesis 2 is now dealing with the relationship of the creator and the created. Number thir the, the third observation here is that we're moving, uh, we're, we're changing words for create. In Genesis 1, uh, the writer uses the word bara. In the beginning, God barad the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. And this word bara means, can mean to carve out of stone, but uh, the, the point of it in, in Genesis 1 is, we're trying to show, or the writer's trying to show, that God created all things with a word. Because in those other religions that were writing creation stories around the time that Genesis was written, God was in his creation like God would be in this metal stand. He'd be in the seat that you're sitting on. He'd be in the plants and animals. So they had a worldview where everything was somehow divine. Where Genesis 1 is different than those stories because God barad creation into existence with the word. He stands outside of creation. So he's not in the wood. He's not in the metal. He creates all those things and he calls them good. Okay, this is very important. But in Genesis 2, there's a, a different word that we have for create. It's yastar. And yastar is much more a word that you would, you would use if you're, talking, if you're a craftsman and you're making pottery with your hands, right? Or you're carving something out of wood or you're taking your time with something and building it by hand. It's much more relational than this distant bara speaking something into existence. Notice how God fashions and fabricates the man whose name, by the way, in Hebrew is Adam. And he fashions him out of what? The earth which in Hebrew is Adama. 
Isn't that beautiful? The earth man created by God with his hands. What else does God do? He breathes his nefesh into the man's nostrils like a craftsman. He forms him and breathes his life into the man. He forms the animals out of the earth as well. He forms the woman out of a rib. That's the, the imagery there is of a craftsman working. Yastar. So we're seeing in Genesis 2 already, just in some of the literary cues, that what we're going to be dealing with is a relational chapter. Now, before God created anything that we know of in this universe, there was a relationship. Before God created the first person or plant or animal or planet or star, there was a relationship. God exists in triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's always been in relationship. He's always in perfect relationship. So if we are created in God's image, it stands to reason that we are then created for relationship. Relationship with Him, relationship with the creation. There's all kinds of directions we could go this evening when talking about relationship. Do we talk about our relationship with God as Father, or God as Son, or God as Spirit, God as Provider, God as Savior? Do we talk about our devotional life and how we foster that relationship? We could do all those things. But what is Genesis 2 saying? I think at a foundational level, Genesis 2 is trying to communicate that God, in relation to us, is our trustworthy provider. Our creator, sustainer, and provider. God provides meaningful vocation. We talked about that last week. God provides for all of our needs in the beginning The box top. Remember the puzzle box top. What we're talking about here is the ideal, what we're created for. Okay? I think it's good to remember. I know that we're broken. I know we live in a broken world. But it's good to remember what we're created for. And that gives us hope about what Jesus is going to do in us and what he's actually beginning to do in us. So God created in the beginning every tree that was pleasing, not only giving enough calories, but pleasing in sight and in taste. You know, God could have given us a pill, which always kind of confuses me, like future shows, there's always some kind of like, in the future, we'll have a pill that has all the calories and minerals and vitamins and proteins that you need in one little... How boring. I hope the future never goes there. Like God could have just given us what we needed to get by in a little pill. But how beautiful is it that he gave us taste buds? And he doesn't just create like one kind of food. He creates all these trees to eat from that are pleasing to the sight. I mean, he, it's a full sensory experience. I love, I love the scene, uh, I know I talk about C.S. Lewis a lot, but I can't help it. You know, in the last battle, when finally they get to the afterlife scene, and he's trying to describe the fruit, and it's like, you know, it's like a peach, but it's, it's more juicy and better flavored than you, any peach you can imagine. He says, I can't even explain it. The only way to, you know, talk about it is you'll just have to experience it one day. It's just, I imagine that maybe in the garden, things were just so good, and it just shows something about the relational character of God that, You know, he didn't just design us to be workers in his garden or, you know, just to give us rations to get by, but just to lavish us with goodness. Not only for survival, but to flourish, right? So God plants this garden in a place called Eden. 
Eden, even this word means pleasure or delight. It implies fertility overflowing. He places the human in this garden to cultivate it and keep it and enjoy it. And this garden is like kind of metaphorical, metaphorical for God's sanctuary. It's where, you know, God's everywhere, but he hangs out there. His presence is there. In one scene, he's walking in the, you know, in the morning and he's relating to, to the humans. And so he places the man in this garden. And out of Eden flows this river, and it becomes four rivers. And the Bible gives us the name, you know, the Pishon, the Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. And, you know, quick word about Eden and these rivers. From kind of our Western mindset... Uh, and watching one too many Indiana Jones movies, we read that passage, right? And I like and a lot of my life, I've read that as like, I wonder where Eden was. If I could triangulate the vectors of these four rivers, then and, and people have devoted their lives to it, like biblical archaeologists and people. There's been movies about you know finding the river of life and the tree of life, and we just get that, then uh, you know we solve all our problems. Well. There's a few problems with actually trying to find Eden. Uh, first of all, uh, is that rivers change course, right? Like over thousands of years, um, the Columbia River in our state is not going to be the same route as it, as it is today, you know, in a few thousand years. How, 10,000 years, 100, we don't even know how long ago this was. So these rivers have, have probably changed course. That pr- presents a small problem. Second, and more difficult for archaeologists, is the fact that the rivers Pishon and Gihon don't even exist. We don't really know where they were. I mean, everyone has their theories, and our best guess is maybe Eden was somewhere in southern Armenia. But we have to ask ourselves, is, A, is that important? And B, is that what Genesis 2 is really trying to communicate here? What would the original readers perhaps... Thousands of years ago, during Moses' day, what would they have thought when they read this? Well, first of all, I think it's cool because it has the ring of truth. The ring of truth, um, for me when I'm reading scripture, is when it, it throws in these little details that mean absolutely nothing to me. Like Gishon and Pihon, those, or Pishon and Gihon, those rivers don't even exist today. But when, they're, when this was written, Moses' contemporaries would have gone, oh, I know where that is. Right? So it has the ring of truth because... Um, you, you know, they're not just going to write nonsense. Like, there it is. But second, and this is really the key, I think, is there's more than one way to talk about a location, isn't there? Right now, uh, there's a, a, one way is to talk about specificity, physical location. We are at 2100 Broadway, at the corner of Broadway and Halleck. Right? That's true. That's one way to talk about location. But there's another way to talk about location, and that is the quality of the location. Right now, we are at the corner of Broadway and Halleck. But if you didn't know where that was, here's the quality that matters. We're at the intersection of a residential neighborhood and a main street. In this place where we meet, gather a group of people who worship the living God. Out of this building flows praise and worship, the preaching of the Word of God, and a bunch of people who go and try and follow Jesus. That means a lot more in some ways, the quality of the place, as opposed to the address of the place. So Genesis 2 most likely lists the names of these rivers to show something about the quality of God and these rivers. So you see, in that region of the world, water or rivers were like gold. Okay? Anyone live in Southern California before? 
and all the, the fights. I mean, we're, they're willing to pay big dollars to have our water piped down from the Columbia River. They dried up Lake Ozette in the east. In the east. Los Angeles. Have you ever seen when uh, a business goes out of business there, like a 7-Eleven? I noticed this once. You drive by, it, palm trees everywhere, but if no one is paying for the water bill, cactuses start to grow up. Los Angeles should not be there if it's not irrigated, okay? And you know in California, one of the big things besides the actual gold rush is water is gold. Everybody fights over the Colorado River. Now, in this same region, water is gold, Okay, water equals life. In the ancient world, where was the seat of civilization? Tommy, Fertile Crescent, right? History man. The Fertile Crescent. This one spot in all the arid area where there is lush, growing, fertile ground. What Genesis 2 proclaims then is that out of this Eden, this seat of God's sanctuary, flows a river. And out of that river, it branches into four rivers that just so happen to represent the four corners of the earth. What this is saying, quite possibly, is not necessarily the, where's the address of Eden, as if they were trying to do Indiana Jones back then. What this is saying is that God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, is responsible for life in all of the seed of civilization as we know it. To me, that's way more powerful than if I actually knew where Eden was, because it's probably going to be different today anyway, right? God, the life giver, he is good. He's our provider. He's trustworthy. To remind the human in the story of his faithfulness, God placed the tree of life in the middle of the garden. I think most of my my life, I kind of thought that that tree had some magical fruit. And if you ate the fruit, maybe... Three times a week. I don't know how often you'd have to eat it, but you, you just wouldn't die. And that was what the tree of life was about. And then once people sinned, then they couldn't eat the tree of life, and then they died. Um, maybe. But the more and more I study this text, the more that the tree of life is a living representation of God's faithfulness. That God, imagine, he puts you in the garden. Everything you need and way more is there to sustain you, to help you flourish. He gives you good work. He gives you all the food, the the very river of life flowing there. And in the middle is this tree of life that is beautiful and lush and a living reminder that God is faithful and gives you everything you need. He intends for us to be in loving, trusting relationship with him. And he intends for us in this relationship to obey. God also placed in this garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are going to devote next week, actually, to dealing with that tree and the consequences surrounding that tree. Next week's dedicated to the fall, so don't worry, it won't be that much of a Debbie Downer day. You still want to come and hear that. Uh, But God... um, but it is good, and from the very beginning, God did create our relationship to have some boundaries. He did create our relationship to have some boundaries. One of the things about trusting God, who created us, who created this beautiful, lush place for us to live, this garden, is that we have to trust that He actually knows us better than we think we know ourselves. That He actually knows what prohibitions, what boundaries are best for us. I know, don't, don't you feel it inside? Well, I think I know what's good for me. Well, that's, 
We'll, we'll get to that next week. <laughs> um, what we're seeing so far is that to relate to God, we trust Him and are to obey Him. But what about our relationship with the creation and with one another? In verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the human, literally the earth man, to be alone. So I'll make a helper suitable for him. So God knows our need, not only for relationship with him, but for relationship with others like us. That's what that word suitable means. When, when God knew that he, we needed a helper uh, suitable for us, suitable means of like kind. And uh, the Hebrew word here for helper, God says that he'll make a helper for us, is the Hebrew word ezer. Say that, ezer. You just said something in Hebrew. Uh, the word for helper is ezer. And some translations translate ezer as helper. In fact, mine does. That's why I keep saying it over and over again. But if you're in my small group, you know that I think that's a bad translation. I think ezer is a much stronger word than helper gives it credit for. Not because helper's a bad word, but because our culture has taken helper and it connotes something weaker than it really means. When I say the word helper, and I think, <laughs> was it uh, Simpsons, Santa's little helper? Right? If you don't get that, don't worry. Helper sometimes represents the, this idea of someone less than, someone subordinate to. Um, I'm the boss, I get a helper. Right? Helper very rarely in our culture represents somebody equal to, of equal stature. And that's why it's a weak word. Ezer in Hebrew actually means more of a partner, a colleague. Ezer is actually a very strong word. And actually, God is often referred to as an Ezer in the Psalms. And in a military, in a strength-giving way, he comes to our aid as an Ezer. So, God provides. He notices that the man needs some companionship. And first he fashions the animals out of the earth. He gives them to the Adam, to the earth man. And this man has relationship with the animals, not in a weird way, but in the sense that he names them and has authority over them. And the animals, he finds, are not adequate easers, are they? They're not good partners. They're not good equals. They're not good colleagues. They stink, and they're not at all like him. And it's kind of odd to me that the living God of the universe who knows all things uh, knows that the man has this problem, that he needs a partner, and then he creates like these animals first. I don't know, I read, I read one commentator, I think he was kind of joking, but kind of makes sense too, that the man was so dense that he wouldn't realize his need for a woman until he had gone through the stages of trying to name all the animals first. And finally, he's at his wit's end, he knows he, he needs something more than that, and that's when God creates woman, only after the man could actually uh, appreciate her. So, the story goes that God caused Adam to have this very deep sleep, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the wound and fashioned the woman out of this rib. What does Moses want to know about this? Why does Moses add this detail about how God took a rib out of some guy and created a woman out of it? Well, I, I mean, just on the novel level, it's kind of interesting like, maybe God was the first genetic engineer, and like, you know how we're dealing with stem cells and stuff, maybe he could create a whole person out of a rib bone. Maybe that's what our scientists should look, is out of the rib bone. And we could make whole people. Could have happened that way, I guess. I'm not saying it didn't. I am saying, I think the important thing about this part of the story, 
is that it's dealing with relationship. The fact that the woman is created to be the man's easer. Partner. I know that's never flattering, so don't like if you're trying to date someone, don't call, hey, easer. Or, you know, don't call your wife an easer. Justin, don't be called Megan easer. You know, it's very, it's not a, yeah, yeah. But that's, the woman is created to be the man's colleague, strong partner. Commentator Matthew Henry is famous for this quip. I couldn't preach this without reading it. He says, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. When God first presents the, the woman to the man, what does the guy do? What every romantic guy does, he busts out in a song, in a poem. I hope in your scriptures that it, that is indented and, uh, and clearly different than the main body of the text. It is most certainly a poem. It's quite beautiful in the Hebrew. And uh, he names the woman Isha. That's the Hebrew for woman. You know why? Because man is Ish. So the Ish names the woman Isha. Is this kind of pretty? I guess Isha is okay. You can call your woman Isha. Uh, and you see, before humans rebelled against God, they shared trusting relationships with each other. There's mutuality between one another. Without power struggles and the fear of one dominating the other, sex between married men and women was beautiful. There was no need for shame. There's no need for shame even of being naked. Pretty cool. There was nothing to hide from God or each other. Think about how awesome that was. Be you know one of our our core values here at Letter Street says authenticity and acceptance. Why is that a core value? I think that's how it's meant to be. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But we're growing in that way. I hope that this becomes more and more a community where you can be real. Because that, to me, is a dream. Being able to be absolutely who we are with everyone and not fear that someone's going to talk bad about us or hurt us or try and dominate us. That's how it was in the beginning. I kind of agonized over this part of the scripture this week, uh, and I want to give a word to those who are not married. I know that for some, singleness is a source of pain. And you might read Genesis 2 and think that you are in some way less than fulfilled. And first of all, I just want to acknowledge that your pain is real. And second, I want to affirm that you are fully fully made in God's image, whether you're married or dating or not. Genesis 1.27 reminds us that God made humanity in his image. He made them male and female. He declares that the male and the female are in his image before they're married, before they're together. I also want to say to everyone who has a relationship that whether you're married or widowed or divorced or single, we can never be fulfilled without the living God. I can never, 
on my best day, meet all of Corey's needs if I was the perfect husband. We are designed, designed, designed to need the living God to be fulfilled. What I'm trying to do here is give us the puzzle box top. I'm trying to give us a vision of what life was intended to be. Not so that we can pretend there's not problems in the world, but so that we can see a glimpse of the life we can have in Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned Sophia and I trying to do this puzzle without the box top. But even when I talked her into using the box top, and we're trying to get all the pieces together, there's, you know, when you're dealing with a four-year-old, there's mechanical issues, right? Like, you just have to tweak the pieces a little bit. So sometimes she's trying to cram pieces in where they don't quite fit or trying to put them in cockeyed and she's warping the whole picture. The more frustrated she got, the harder she pushed, the more warped the picture became. Now, if we look at Genesis as our box top for life and we try and live that way in our own strength, we are going to get frustrated. We are going to fail. We're going to try and force things that aren't really in us. What we need to do is to trust. One of the ways we trust is to rest. Say that again, workaholics. One of the ways we trust is to rest. Now, I know some of you workaholics, like me, you were thinking, this is awesome. Chris is already into chapter 2, and he's totally missed the whole Sabbath. Uh Uh-huh. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Wrong. I'm going to hit Sabbath right here. (laughs) It's one of the ultimate displays of our trust. When Sophia was frustrated, after looking at the box top, trying to push the pieces in where they didn't necessarily fit or trying to make them work, I told her to take a break. Actually, I bribed her with chocolate milk. That's that's back when we had that really good stuff from uh, Linden. You guys tried that in the bottle? So good. Um, Anyway, so I bribe her with chocolate milk. She comes back. She's a little more relaxed, and I guide her with my hand to put the pieces where they go. John Ortberg calls that in the spiritual life, Trying softer. How do you like that? Trying softer. Listen to what Eugene Peterson writes about Sabbath. God blesses Sabbath and makes it holy in the best interest of all people and all animals. It's a time to heal and to do good. The Sabbath is the sign that the Creator has set Israel... And now, all who follow Jesus, the new Israel, apart for a special covenant relationship with him. A person who feels inclined to work seven days a week should examine what God he or she worships. I'm feeling that. I need to say that again just for me. A person who feels inclined to work seven days a week should examine what God he or she worships. Sabbath observance reminds Israel that they were slaves in Egypt, but that the the mighty Lord has redeemed them from servitude to rest. What the day of rest does is it shows our dependence on God. When we rest, we say, God, I trust you more than what I produce. Okay, just as a little exercise, say that with me. I'll say it one. I trust you more than I produce. God, I trust you more than I produce. 
Wow. I trust you to produce what is needed. In fact, check this out. In Hebrew thought, the next day began at sundown. Isn't that weird? The next day began at sundown. Notice in the creation story how each day says, uh, and there was evening and there was morning one day. It doesn't say there was morning and then evening one day. It says there is evening and there was morning one day. So instead of getting up early to start the day and downing a bunch of coffee and say, I'm ready to get going, Hebrew thought says, I go to bed and God is already at work. The day starts when I go to bed. So instead of work, 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 and then rest exhausted, it's rest and then wake up refreshed and join in what God has already begun when you went to bed. When we rest, we give our attention to God. We allow the creation to rest when we rest. We don't tax all the resources all the time. When we rest, we give our attention to God. We allow Him to work in us and to guide us and to reform us. Some of the most formative work that God does is when we're asleep. We have to stop and shut up long enough for him to do stuff in our hearts. Rearrange us. We allow God to put the pieces of our broken image-bearing puzzle back together. Now, I'm still working on this, but if you've been around me a little bit, you know that Fridays are my attempt at Sabbath. This is my goal, not the reality. I make Fridays about reflection. I make Fridays uh, about my family and how we can enjoy one another. For me, Fridays are about how God has been faithful to me, faithful to my family throughout the week. And I struggle with getting things done, right? And sometimes I cheat and I claim, well, this chore that I'm doing is really a hobby and I really enjoy it so I can do it on my Sabbath, right? I, I, I cheat. I confess. But I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Right, honey? Getting better. And I'm finding that when I take that day out and I think, I'm never going to get all this stuff done, most of the time, I'm more efficient with the rest of my week. Somehow things just fall into place. And sometimes I don't get things done. And God shows me, you know what? The world doesn't revolve around you and what you can get done. And that's a really good lesson for me to know. And maybe you too. Sabbath is completely countercultural. It's not a mere day off for a holiday. And I feel like because I'm quoting, I can say bad words. But Eugene Peterson says, a day off is a bastard Sabbath. A Sabbath is not just a day off to have fun. Although fun is part of Sabbath. A Sabbath is a day of rest so that we can focus on God. Sabbath is about stopping the madness, right? By quieting the annoying impulse to produce and to be noticed and to be thought valuable by everybody else. Sabbath is a reminder that we don't really own our lives. God does. And that is a very good thing. So is Sabbath the answer? Do we need to follow now this one more law to be made whole? That's not my point at all. 
the Sabbath giver is the answer, right? The Sabbath giver is the Savior. And the question is, do I trust that Sabbath giver, that Savior, enough to actually take a break? Sabbath, just like giving, just like serving, it's just an outward expression that shows what's really going on in my heart. If I don't really trust Him, I'm not going to rest. If I don't really trust Him, I'm not going to be generous. If I don't really trust Him, I'm not going to spend my time volunteering when I could be doing things that make me happier, right? In John chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who had been lame for 38 years. 38 years. And you remember what he asks this guy? Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? We've seen the box top. How God's character is displayed and how good he wants our relationship to be with him and with each other. And here Jesus stands and asks, Do you wish to be made whole? To begin living like you were created to live as God's image bearer. I think he's standing here and saying to us, Trust me. Trust me to forgive you where you've strayed. And trust me to give you my spirit to guide you and to reform you into God's image, the image of His Son, Jesus. If that sounds good to you, join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word in Genesis 1 and 2 that shows us what you created us for, the depth of relation the depth of relationship you intended for us to have with you and to have with our surroundings and to have with each other god when i look at that picture and what's really going on in the world there is a disconnect when i look at that picture and even some of the things in my heart there is a disconnect and i thank you for your graciousness and not just saying, oh, well, you guys messed it up, too bad. But you did something about it. You took the initiative. And you gave yourself for us. And you bid us to turn around, to change direction, and to follow you, to trust you afresh. And Jesus, you know my heart. You know every heart here in this place. Pray by the power of your spirit that you would help each of us to turn and to trust in those ways that were most reluctant, in those ways that were guarding out of fear, out of shame, or any other number of reasons. We thank you that you're trustworthy. Help us to be men and women who are thankful for your goodness and grace. Amen. Invite our communion servers forward, please.